Columbia requires students to get vaccinated against measles, mumps, rubella, and now the coronavirus. I'll share what we know about the college's new requirement to return in the fall and how soon vaccines will be provided on campus. Stay tuned to learn about the latest step Columbia has taken to push the college towards becoming an anti-racist institution. Also, students, faculty, and staff had the chance to ask President and CEO Kwang Woo Kim about his State of the College address. And they weren't too happy about it. Everyone I've spoken to has, has been upset by the what they heard. And if that was his goal, then that, he did a good job. Coming up, was justice served in the Derek Chauvin trial? Hear from the Columbia community and government officials about their thoughts on the trial. This is Chronicle Headlines. I'm your host, Paige Barnes. Columbia is joining the growing list of colleges requiring students to get the COVID-19 vaccine before the start of the fall semester. Managing Editor Diana Daniels joins me now to tell you what Illinois colleges are requiring the vaccine and how to sign up to get it on campus. Columbia basically requiring vaccinations is pretty groundbreaking for the fall 2021 semester because um, apparently Columbia is one of about 25 or more schools that have um, decided to require students to get vaccinated to continue their education at the college level. Um, And it's also really interesting because Columbia was the first college in Illinois to make this a mandatory requirement. Um, And before Columbia made this announcement, the closest colleges that we had that required this were, I believe, Notre Dame and St. Mary's, which are in Indiana. Are there any other colleges now in Illinois requiring the vaccine? Apparently, DePaul has now joined this list, too, um, as of, I think, yesterday, which was April 21st. What vaccine did the college say it would offer students? Columbia said that they hope to offer the Pfizer vaccine. That's what was in the original April 19th email. But um, since then, apparently, we've gotten doses of the Moderna vaccine, um, and they're hoping to either get more Moderna or Pfizer in the future. So right as we speak, like right now, people are getting vaccinated with Moderna or and or Pfizer. Yeah. So um, apparently some people have been saying that they've been getting the Moderna. How does the vaccination process work? So how can students sign up and what are the hours of operation? Students can sign up according to this email through a website called VaxQ to make an appointment where basically you go to the site, they ask you a couple questions like your name, your date of birth, address, and if you'll be available to return to campus to get your second dose by May, June, or July. Is it true that there are walk-in times if someone can't register, can't, but forgets to register in advance? Apparently, yes, there are walk-in times. I didn't even know this, but the college is um, welcoming walk-ins Mondays through Fridays from 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. at 618 South Michigan on the first floor. Can we go into the stipulations of being vaccinated? So um, who is eligible, who is not eligible? Oh boy, buckle up these stipulations. We have a few. So apparently, similarly to getting vaccinated elsewhere, you have to make sure that you're available to come back to Columbia's campus for your second dose. Um, And the college has a limited supply of the vaccines because according to their email, um, Columbia will receive 
fewer doses than it has students and employees. And this is also why they mentioned that if someone can get both doses of the vaccine from a non-campus provider, it's recommended that they do so. So for example, if you have to leave campus after your first dose, it may be better to look for to go someplace else. Um, either way, uh, they must go to the same location to get their second dose. And the email also noted that many states, including Illinois, does not allow people to receive a second dose from a different provider. So it's not like you can go to Columbia's campus and let's say go to like the United Center to get your second dose. That's really interesting because I think this would, you know, mainly affect people in residence halls because they don't usually, students who stay there don't typically stay during the, the summer. So that's interesting that they have to wait. And what is the time period between someone's first dose versus second dose for the Moderna vaccine? Oh, gosh. Um, we actually have this discussion in my class today. I think it's like 28 days or something like that in between getting your first and second dose. So always make sure that you have some availability on your calendar. <laughs> Of course. And if someone were to get the vaccine today, then that means that they would get their second dose, you know, a few weeks, actually two weeks after school lets out. Because I know as a, we both know as a graduating senior, we're trying to get out of here. So we have yeah. about two weeks and counting. And next, what about any exceptions? Um, can, what, can someone be exempt from getting the vaccine? What happens? Actually, yes, you can be exempt. Um, so in our case, Paige, since we are graduating, we can still get the vaccine because we are registered for this semester, but um, it's not required for us to finish the semester. Um, but we can still sign up if we want to. So shout out to all the other seniors who might want to get vaccinated while you can, but also students who want to get vaccinated and um, have registered for the spring 2021 semester. They can do much like faculty and staff, for uh, full and part-time faculty and staff who are teaching in spring 2021 semester or are scheduled to teach in the summer or fall 2021 where they can just sign up for VAXQ along with everyone else. Um, speaking of staff and faculty, um, they will not be required to get vaccinated, but it is strongly encouraged uh, according to the email. Do you know why staff and faculty are not required to be vaccinated? That's a good question that I can't answer. <laughs> That is okay. And lastly, I want to ask about how the vaccine requirement will affect international students. Of course. Um, let's see. So for international students, they're basically the only exception that I've seen, which is um, the email pointed out that if an international student has already been vaccinated in another country with a vaccine that's not approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, um, they will not be required to be revaccinated, but vaccines will still be made available to them. And similarly, if students live in residence halls, uh, they must wait until they move in to have completed their full vaccination cycle, which usually ends two weeks after their second dose. But international students who are unable to receive the vaccine before arriving on campus will be granted an extension on their vaccination. Are you saying then if an international student, let's say, gets vaccinated with a non-FDA proof, so at this moment, um, like AstraZeneca, could they get vaccinated with the Moderna or Pfizer through the college? Uh, actually, yes, because according to the college's experts at Rush, um, it's perfectly safe. Interesting. They are going to be extra protected, extra dangerous against the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic. An extra shield, if you will. <laughs> Thank you very much, Diana, for joining me. You can read her full article at ColumbiaChronicle.com.
um, it's nice to see. I think it's a step above symbolic because they actively are going to observe that day and take that day off and, you know, allow people to celebrate it if they so choose to, um, or at the very least, you know, begin to question what it is. Starting this year, Columbia will observe Juneteenth, also known as Emancipation Day or Freedom Day. This commemorates the day when Union soldiers told the last enslaved Black Americans that they were free in 1865. The announcement came two years after Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and months after the Civil War had ended. Many states celebrate Juneteenth, but not all. Joining me now is staff reporter Cameron Cutinello to talk about why this step is an important part of Columbia's efforts toward diversity, equity, and inclusion. The Office of the President sent out a college-wide email Friday, April 16th to announce that Columbia would begin observing Juneteenth. This holiday, uh, this year the holiday falls on a Saturday, so campus will be closed Friday, June 18th in observation. Why was this step important for Columbia? Aisha Henry, a senior fashion studies major and vice president of the Black Student Union, said that Columbia's, with Columbia's new diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, it is important that Juneteenth be celebrated as a holiday by the college instead of simply being recognized. This decision is all part of the college's push for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and, you know, the college has already established the anti-racism transformation team and social justice initiative. So you could, could you speak upon that about how it's um, a step for diversity, equity, and inclusion? Isaiah Moore is a senior television and cultural studies double major, and he is an anti-racism trust team fellow. And he said the move is a step in the right direction. He said that observing Juneteenth is a good starting point in having a conversation on Black history outside of just the month of February. I think that's a step in the right direction. Obviously, that's not the only thing that has to be addressed in regards to, um, you know, Black history and such. But having that discussion, that dialogue outside of the month of February is also important. And Juneteenth is a, you know, a good starting point for that at the very least. Where else is Juneteenth celebrated, whether it be within certain counties or states or even nationally? Juneteenth is currently recognized by 47 states and the District of Columbia. Cook County announced in December of 2020 that it will begin observing Juneteenth, making it the largest county in the um, country to recognize it as a paid holiday. Is it celebrated in Illinois, though? Um, In March of 2021, a bill was sponsored by Senator Kimberly Lightfoot, a Democrat from Maywood, to make Juneteenth a state holiday, and the bill was approved by a state Senate committee. committee. The bill would make Juneteenth a paid holiday for all state employees and is currently being considered by the House and Senate of the Illinois General Assembly. Thank you, Cameron, for speaking with me today. You can read her full article at ColumbiaChronicle.com. The nation held its breath, waiting to hear the verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin. Columbia and the city had measures in place awaiting potential protests, but once it was announced the former Minneapolis police officer was found guilty of the murder of George Floyd, peace followed. From students, Out of my entire 21 years of living, I don't remember ever having a situation go the way that you would think it should go. I think that the trial should have been a little shorter, especially because the people that they brought in already knew what what they were going to say and what was wrong already. They brought in officials to say that same thing. Um, But I 
am glad that they finally are giving cops accountability or this one um, and possibly more later on. So I think that the jury made a good choice. When we heard him say that he was guilty on all three charges, I couldn't believe it. I was amazed and I was very glad to see Chauvin escorted out of that courtroom in handcuffs. My mom was in tears of joy and I was, my, I was relieved. To city and national officials. Today, we feel a sigh of relief. Still, it cannot take away the pain. A measure of justice isn't the same as equal justice. This verdict brings us a step closer. And the fact is, we still have work to do. His peers judged Derek Chauvin and found him guilty of committing a criminal act of murder against George Floyd. And I believe that that was absolutely the only reasonable verdict that could be returned based upon the evidence presented in that case. Many said this serves as a reminder to continue pushing for racial justice. Photojournalist Zachary Klingenpeel is here to talk about what's happened since the verdict was announced. When the verdict came out, so, um, you know, earlier that day, um, there was an announcement that um, they had reached a verdict um, that it would be made public, I believe, around um, 3.30 to 4. Um, and around that time when they announced that, uh, the school said, you know, it would be on lockdown, it would be closing early. Um, I know, like I heard from some people who were in the school, uh, I believe you actually, <laughs> that um, they started pushing students out. I was on a tour and that is how I learned as somebody from the student center said, hey, you have to get out of this building. Columbia is closing. Yeah. And, and that was part of, right, Columbia preparing for the verdict. And so what, when did it send out an email and what did it say? There was an email the day before, I believe, um, that said that it would be closing. On that day, uh, you know, there was an email saying that all facilities would be closed. Um, any online classes would still be taking place, but um, if you had an in-person class, that would be canceled. Um, and um, it said that it would be closed until further notice. Um, I think that there wasn't really necessarily like a plan for reopening until more information came out. And then um, later on that night, after um, after the verdict was uh, you know made public and students knew a little bit more, um, you know, they, they said that it would be opening up again the next morning. When the verdict came out, what was the Columbia community's reaction? When the actual verdict was made public, you know, I uh, reached out to a couple of different, um, you know, faculty and students. Um, and, uh, you know, I heard a little bit back from some folks. Um, so, you know, Marcella David, the provost, uh, you know, sent a, sent a statement about it. Um, you know, her statement was just saying that, um, you know, she was she was glad that the verdict had come out guilty and that she hoped that it would um, mean a sign of change in the future um, for instances of police violence. And, um, you know, I also spoke to Isaiah Moore, who is the president of the SOC. Um, and, you know, they were saying that, um, you know, they were glad that it had happened uh, the way that it did and that they hoped that in the future, um, you know, more even more progressive change uh, can come uh, from verdicts like this and future verdicts. The city also had a plan of action in preparation for the verdict. Who was brought in and then what plans were made? So earlier in the week, Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, requested of you know the governor and of the state to bring in the Illinois uh, National Reserves. They came in. I know that the city was preparing in other ways. There was you know increased police presence downtown. And I believe that they had a security protocol in place. I noticed the 
increased police presence as well in the downtown area. And I also heard multiple helicopters overhead before the verdict and even after the verdict. Which leads me to my next question is uh, about what city officials said about the verdict. A couple of officials, you know, spoke on on the verdict. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, discussed on in a public statement on her Twitter page, um, you know, the verdicts and uh, that, um, you know, she spoke very highly of, of the uh, guilty verdicts and um, just the sense of justice that came with them, uh, as well as Lightfoot statements. Governor J.B. Pritzker put out a public statement um, saying that the verdict marks an important milestone on the journey to justice um, and that, you know, progress was still yet to be made uh, in other in other fields of justice. Can you explain to me the counts Chauvin was charged with, starting with second degree unintentional murder? With charges, um, things can get really specific, and you know, part of part of that is the reason why some of this trial took a long time. Um, you know, the first two charges they gave to him back in May, and then they had to update them later on. So the first charge uh, that he was, you know, that he was found guilty of is second degree unintentional murder. This means that. Uh, you know, Floyd was murdered without intent. Um, however, the subject in question was, um, you know, committing the murder while committing some other felony, um, such as third degree assault or, or um, you know, attempting to commit a felony such as third degree assault. The next charge that he was found guilty of is third degree mur- murder. Third degree murder is, uh, you know, the act of perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to others and a uh, evincing a depraved mind without regard for human life. Um, so, you know, this would be, you know, kneeling on kneeling on the neck, uh, you know, for a prolonged period of time. Um, you know, that is, is an act that is eminently dangerous, as, as according to the jury. And then um, the last charge, which he was found guilty of, is second degree manslaughter, uh, which is you know, culpable negligence. Uh, meaning, you know, there was, you know, there was some degree of you know, negligence on the force that resulted in Floyd's death. Um, and then on top of all three of these charges, the, uh, the judge revoked his bail. You also wrote about how some protesters were already prepared at Cloudgate and Daily Plaza, even before the verdict was announced. What ended up happening since Chauvin was found guilty on all three charges? That night, we had a couple of reporters um, out prepared to, um, prepared to you know, photograph and interview some of these people. Um, you know, we had been seeing messages before that, um, you know, via social media saying, you know, people would be gathering Um, when they got out there, uh, you know, it was after the verdict was announced publicly and not a lot of people showed up as expected. Um, I believe there's an image that I've seen circulating online that is like um, a very small crowd surrounded by reporters. Uh, It was almost like the same size of the crowd was in, you know, the media seems like they came out. Um, they spoke briefly, but they departed pretty quickly. I, I can't speak as far as, you know, uh, what the energy was like, um, you know, but based on interviews that I heard, uh, you know, people were just grateful that the uh, verdict had come out guilty. Thank you for your time, Zachary. I appreciate it. You can read Zach's full article at ColumbiaChronicle.com.
Following his State of the College address, President and CEO Kwang Woo Kim held multiple Zoom forums for students, faculty, and staff to speak their minds and ask questions about the initiatives he laid out. Students questioned why it took Kim more than two weeks to address the Atlanta spa shootings. Faculty criticized Kim for asking them to do more without additional compensation and resources. Staff felt like Kim doesn't acknowledge the work that they're already putting in. Staff reporter Noah Jennings joins me now to talk about what Kim had to say in response to the widespread criticism and questions about his new initiatives. With the student forum it took place last week on Friday, myself, Matus Janik, and Cameron Coutinello all attended. Um, and at the start, you know, Dr. Kimmy gave just some general remarks. Um, one of the big takeaways from that is he gave his estimations for the fall semester to have roughly 75% of classes with some sort of in-person component, meaning that they're at least hybrid or fully in-person. Um, and he gave some context with that, that this previous semester, it was only at about 25% that had some sort of in-person component. That's a pretty big jump. From there, then, he started taking some uh, pre-submitted questions, one of them being about his response to the Atlanta spa shootings uh, in his statement about anti-Asian hate, because he had received some flack from the Asian student organization because of the fact that it took over two weeks for a statement to be put out about that, um, as opposed to, for example, after the death of George Floyd, it was a matter of days before something came out. So basically, he said that, you know, as an Asian man, it affected him on a very deep level. And he was, you know, pretty angry and upset about the situation. And so he said that he had written a letter, a statement about what had happened, except when he looked back at it, he realized that it was really hot and really fiery and angry. And he decided that that wasn't going to be to the benefit of anyone at the college. And he wanted to put something out that would, you know, make students feel, uh, you know, welcomed and, you know, supported at Columbia. And he felt that, you know, he needed to take the time to cool down before sending something out as sensitive as that. Celluloid film has also been a really touchy subject. And actually, you were on the show in a previous episode talking about celluloid film not not being re-established, I'd say, in the next next fall. So I am wondering, did he have any comments about that? I was pretty interested in this going into the forum because of, as you mentioned, with my previous work with it. But I did get the chance to ask him about this at the forum and, you know, before I even go into his answer, I think it's important to note he's said nothing about this this entire time since the announcement of it. This is his first public statement that's been made at all about it. Um, and he essentially said that he doesn't have he didn't have anything to do with this particular decision. He said that um, prior to students voicing their thoughts on it. Um, he hadn't heard anything about it because he doesn't involve himself in department level curriculum decisions. And he said that he wasn't necessarily sure of if it was a good or bad decision at first, just because he doesn't have a lot of experience in the film side of things. So he said that he he called some people, um, their Columbia alums, he said he called uh, Len Amato, the former president of HBO Films, 
as well as producer and director Paul Garns, um, both of whom are, as I said, Columbia alums. And, you know, just to kind of pick their brains on, you know, is this the right move? And he says that they both said that it was a good idea and that they essentially said that film is dead in the industry, which, you know, obviously I found quite interesting because of the fact that, you know, there was that letter that I talked to you about that had a multitude of Academy Award winners signed onto it saying you need to keep film. And so, you know, that was his only rationale that he gave for why he supported the decision. And so it's it's certainly interesting. And I'm certainly curious to see what students have in response to that because of the fact that it really seems like a matter of, well, this side says this and this side says that, and they just completely contradict each other. I was just about to mention that because I do remember you talking about that letter and the Academy Award winners and the alums. And so it's really just one alum says this and the other alum say that. So I don't think it necessarily negates one side or the other because they're both Columbia alum. There was an actual letter with signatures. There was a podcast that these people came on and actually talked and you heard from them. While Dr. Kim's is he mentions two people that he says said this we don't even actually have it directly from them saying that in support of that and so i think that that's really interesting to me because it really like i wouldn't be surprised if you know the students take it as him not necessarily listening to them when they have all of these other people backing them up I don't think the fight for celluloid film is going anywhere soon. I should say actually the debate about celluloid film. Let's talk about the faculty forum. Um, if I am not, correct me if I'm wrong, that you all were not admitted entrants, but necessarily talked to a spokesperson and people who attended these forums. Yes, we were not allowed to uh, attend these forums, but we talked to some of the um, higher ups that you know, were in attendance. So for example, uh, we talked with Sean Johnson Andrews, the president of the faculty senate. One of the things that he was talking about, um, you know, he was saying that there's a lot of faculty that aren't very happy with the responses that Kim gave during his address, as well as the forum, evidently, um, mainly just from one of the biggest things being from burnout. That a lot of these changes and a lot of the kind of future of the college rely on us kind of digging even deeper for more energy uh, and enthusiasm. So I think that's, that, you know, the burnout is real <laughs> and the wall is real. And so it's sort of like, how are we going to get past that to continue pushing for advancing the mission of the college, uh, making changes in the curriculum? Sean Johnson Andrews said that it was kind of the wrong message at the time, considering it sounded like he was saying, you know, let's do more. Uh, let's add more to your plates and, you know, work this way. Is there anything else that Andrews commented about Kim's address? Yeah, there was certainly some um, about, you know, revamping the curriculum in a sense, uh, because, you know, they talked about uh, complex collaboration was one of those, meaning, you know, more work in between majors that relate to each other. Um, as well as, um, and, you know, things like that. Sorry, let me end where I ended that last sentence. But uh, as well as talking about, you know, that these changes are kind of going to require faculty to dig even deeper 
in a sense and find more work to do in revamping you know their curriculum and finding new solutions for these things and he sort of said that you know faculty have had concerns about things like course capacities and sabbaticals being canceled and you know these are things that we've reported on i know for a while now but you know he sees it as sort of an example of how the administration is asking more and more of the faculty without giving them anything more in a sense faculty haven't had an across the board raise in over a decade um which is you know quite a long time and so for to be asking more and more of the faculty to find these new creative solutions and do these more things and find new resources for different ideas uh you know they they feel left out a little bit faculty aren't really happy and it sounds like that some of the staff of columbia also shares similar sentiments what does staff the staff that you all spoke to have to say craig siegel uh the academic manager for the communication department as well as the president of the united staff of columbia said that you know some of the same that you know he took it as kim was telling the staff that they just simply aren't doing enough um, and that they need to do more. Many of the things he um, suggested we need, we have, and the departments of faculty are working with students, working on the careers for students, mentoring them. Uh, a lot of business ideas, um, students do business plans in their capstone classes. Uh, so a lot of this activity is already being done. So uh, it makes it, it makes it seem like He's not aware of what is being done. And he also talked about, you know, with this, it's going to need more support for the career center a lot more if he wants to have a career advisor as well as an academic advisor assigned to each student. You know, um, they, they're going to need a lot more funding, as he said. Before we close out today, what about the position papers? Well, we know that they're set to come out today. Uh, I don't believe they gave an exact time of when today. Um, but essentially what it should be is a little bit of a restatement of what was in uh, his address, but hopefully a bit more fleshed out, you know, because part of I think something that's important to consider with the address is, you know, it's 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 very much a speech, you know, and there's a lot of strategies that go into speeches to keep audiences engaged and whatnot. Whereas when it's a position paper now, you know, you can start rattling off the facts. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see if that's, in fact, the direction they go with, with where they're exactly going for the future instead of, you know, just the broad ideas of what they want to do. Because if someone were to, you know, start rattling off numbers during a 40 plus minute speech, you know, I think that that could really lose a lot of audience. So I think that's something to certainly consider. And, um, you know, I think that that will be interesting to see as to whether or not it's going to, because, you know, there's, there's a two week gap here between the original forums and the position papers. And so it'll be interesting to see how much he reacts to the forums prior to these position papers coming out. Cause he's got that in between spot between the address and the position papers. So I think that the position papers are going to give us a chance to hopefully see a little bit of a clearer look at what precisely he's attempting to do in the future. I look forward to reading what the Chronicle reports on the position papers when they are released. 
Thank you very much for joining me today. You can read Noah's, Matush Janik's, and Cameron Coutinello's article at columbiachronicle.com. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all these stories and more at columbiachronicle.com. For additional coverage, we are at CC Chronicle on Instagram and Twitter. Chronicle Headlines is made possible by a collaboration with the staff of the Columbia Chronicle and WCRX-FM, Chicago's Underground. Under the leadership of Suzanne McBride, Chair of the Communication Department at Columbia College Chicago. Until next time, I'm your host, Paige Barnes.